Thank you for walking and not running. <laughs> Praise the Lord. The rest of you, I would uh, encourage you to open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I think it's wonderful that um, Judy sends out the bulletin every week on Wednesday. So uh, if you look at your email, you will have uh, the bulletin. You will know the sermon title, the sermon text, and the key verses. And so that allows you to read that in advance and really meditate upon what it says. And I hope you will do that. We will see in our text for today... The need for humility, and that humility leads to unity. And of course, the opposite is also true. A lack of humility leads to disunity. So let me ask this question. How important is unity? Very. Thank you. Paula would have led that if she was still here. And how do we know this? How do we know that unity is very important? The Bible tells us so, and so did Jesus. I mentioned this two weeks ago in my last sermon. The night before Jesus went to the cross to lay down his life, he prayed to his Father for us, for you and I, to experience unity. In John 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus prayed these words to his Father. I do not ask for these alone. The these alone were the disciples who were with him in the garden as he was praying. He said to the Father, I don't ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus says, Father, not only these who are with me, but everyone who will believe in me through their word, and that's every one of us, My desire is they would all be one. And when that happens, the world will believe that you have sent me. Because listen, folks, in the world, there is no unity. In the natural world, unity does not exist. Sometimes for a little while. Until somebody says or does something, and then guess what? Disunity enters in. Strife and conflict enter in. And so, Jesus knew the need for all of his father's followers to be united, to be of one mind, to be of the same love for one another, to live in full accord. And this is made possible through our union with Christ and through his spirit indwelling us. Unity is absolutely essential if we are to live lives worthy of Christ and if we are to strive side by side for the sake of the gospel. 
I mentioned two weeks ago that our objective union with Christ is eternal. But because of our sin nature and our natural proclivity to put ourselves first, our unity with others is always at risk. That is why Paul wrote to the Ephesians, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Be eager to maintain it, meaning there's something we have to do. There's some maintenance required in order to have unity. In fact, flip over to Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. We'll come back to our text. But just flip a couple of pages over to Ephesians 1. Let me read verses, excuse me, Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 3. Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, remember he's writing this from prison, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How many of us are supposed to do that? All. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. That's really easy to do, isn't it? To live in humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So how do we maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? What can we do to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the church? Well, that's a good question. And the key answer is, we must humble ourselves. We must humble ourselves. We must, in humility, count others as more important than ourselves. Looking out for the interests of others more than our own interests. How important is humility? Very important. (laughs) Essential. Jesus tells us, excuse me, James tells us in James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So humility results in grace and in unity. So let's turn again to Paul's letter to the Philippians. And as we do, let me remind you of where we are in this study of Paul's letter to his beloved partners in gospel ministry. Paul opened his letter with a greeting in verses 1 and 2. Then he gave thanks for their partnership in the gospel in verses 3 through 8. And then in verses 9 to 11, he offered up a prayer for them. Paul then gives him an update on how things were going for him in his captivity in Rome in verses 12 to 18, followed by a statement of Paul's absolute confidence in God's plan for him. Whatever that plan might be, whether that plan included him going on and living and being in ministry or whether that plan included him being executed by Nero. 
This statement contains the penultimate statement of how we should all view our time on this planet. And I quoted it earlier. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the penultimate statement for every one of us of how we should live our life on planet earth. We should live in obedience to Christ, live to glorify Christ, live to make Christ known. And if we die, praise be to God. That's game. I can't wait, folks. I can't. Can't be too soon. But in verse 27, Paul turns his attention to calling the members of the church in Philippi to live their lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. He wants them to live as Christ would have them live. He wants them to live to honor Christ, to shine for Christ, and listen to this, to work together, side by side for the sake of the gospel. He wanted them to live as a true spiritual community. Does that sound familiar? The community that Jesus had formed them to be. And so Paul calls them to stand firm, to hold their ground, to hold fast to biblical truth and to their convictions without compromise, no matter the opposition and no matter the cost. And he reminds them and us that we can do this through the power of the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. And so, I want us to read our text for today, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. So let's all stand, if you are able, for the reading of the text. I'm going to be reading Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We heard this earlier. I asked Adam to read it for us in our scripture reading. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May God bless the reading of his word to us. You may be seated. So two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, Paul listed for us four blessings from God that should motivate us to live in a manner pleasing to God. Four blessings, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, that's the love of God, the love of Christ for us, fellowship of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, affection and compassion from our Lord. Those are motivating factors, are they not? As God pours out His grace upon us, His love upon us, that should motivate us to live for Him. Then in verse 2, Paul describes the marks of spiritual unity, which again is God's desire for all who make up his church. Being of the same mind, or one in mind, one in the way we think. Number two, having the same love, 
the same love for one another. What same love? The same love that we are loved with by Christ. And God pours that love into our hearts so that we can indeed love one another with that Christ-like love. And number three, to be in full accord and of one mind. He starts with by, by saying being of the same mind, and he ends by saying being of the same mind. In other words, being in full agreement and working together to achieve God's purposes. And again, that, that full agreement doesn't mean on, on every single thing under the sun, right? Some of us, as I said two weeks ago, some of us are Giants fans, and I know that there are a couple of Dodgers fans in this church. I pray for you, brother. Is that something that we need to divide over? No, that doesn't matter. That's not significant. Right? We need to be of one mind on the essentials. Who is Christ? What has Christ done? What is our calling? We need to be united in these things. Well, together we're going to look at we're going to look at verses 3 and 4 today, which tell us the means by which those goals can be achieved. And these means come in the form of two negatives and two corresponding positive commands. We are called by God through the apostle Paul to stop doing two things and to replace those two things by doing two other things. That's pretty simple, right? Just two things, stop doing two things, and do the other two things. Couldn't be any easier, right? Look at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Starts with do nothing from selfish ambition. Or do nothing from selfishness in the NASB. Or my translation, do nothing from a selfish motive. Now, it should not be surprising to us that rejecting selfishness is listed first. Since selfishness is the root of most of the sins we commit. That's right. It was selfishness and empty conceit that led to the fall of Satan. It was selfishness and empty conceit that led to the fall of Adam and Eve. When we focus exclusively on what we want or what we think is best without regard for God or others, we will sin. It's that simple. Selfishness is a consuming and destructive sin. Because this sin, like every other sin, begins in our sinful heart Anyone can commit it, even if it's not outwardly expressed. You see, a lot of the selfishness that we're guilty of, we never express it. 
but it's still there. And even when it is not acted upon, selfishness breeds in us anger, resentment, and jealousy. No church, even the most doctrinally sound, is immune from the threat of this sin. And nothing can more quickly divide or weaken the church. Selfish ambition is usually accompanied by conceit. Those who are convinced of their own superiority of thinking or abilities. We see an example of this sin and what it can do in a church in the New Testament example of the church in Corinth. In fact, keep your place here and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Well, you don't, you don't have to, but... If you'd like to follow along, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm going to be reading verses 10 through 13, and then 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4. Listen to what Paul writes to the church in Corinth, chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Doesn't that sound familiar? Verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or, I follow Apollos. Or, I follow Cephas. Or, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What's going on here? There are factions within the church. There are individuals in that church who think their way is the better way. Their thoughts are superior to others. And so they're dividing up. Oh, I follow this man's teaching. I follow this man's teaching. You're nothing if you don't follow this man's teaching. And then, of course, there are the, the Pharisee-like ones. Oh, I only follow Jesus, right? Do you know that there's a faction of Christianity that only believes we need to follow the red letters of the Bible? Only the words spoken by Jesus, Okay, because the apostles, they're just men. All I have to do is follow what Jesus spoke. And they, they're puffed up in their pride about that. Oh, I follow everything that Jesus says. All the word of God is breathed out by God. Amen? And it's all profitable, right? So Corinth was in a bit of a mess. And why? Because there was no humility. Each one thought more highly of himself than they ought. And so they divided over things. Turn to chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4. Paul writes this. I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of flesh, as infants 
in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. How's that manifested? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? I don't have time to unpack that passage completely, but I want to point out a couple things there. Number one, Paul does not want us to behave in merely a human way. I I can't tell you how many times in my 30 years of pastoral ministry I've had the opportunity to counsel someone because of evidences of sin in their life in one manifestation or another. And I've gotten this response. This is just who I am. Or this is my personality. Or this is how I was raised. Okay? Does that mean that's the way God wants you to be? Does he want you to remain that way? Well, if it's sinful, then the answer is no. Right? God wants us to deliver God wants to deliver us from our fallen human nature and not be controlled by selfish desires. The Apostle Paul says, you're still not ready for the deeper things of God. Discord and division are inevitable when people focus on their own ideas or agendas to the exclusion of others in the church. Disregard for the good of other believers is a mark of loveless, sinful selfishness. And that produces contention, jealousy, and strife. James, in James 3, 16, tells us, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Or, in the NASB, every evil deed. Selfishness must be put off far from us. And it must be replaced by that which pleases our Lord with humility of mind. Paul is calling us here in verse 3 to do all things with humility. Now again, this is a big call. This is a big ask. It is not our nature to be humble. It is not our nature to put off selfishness. Our nature is to put self first. That's our nature. Our fallen human nature. Our sinful nature. And it doesn't go away simply because you pray the prayer of salvation. Or you get baptized. Or you become a member of the church. It's still there. Wanting at every single moment to raise its ugly head. I want, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. I. 
Paul says to count others as more important than ourselves. This goes against our nature. The word that Paul uses here is used throughout the New Testament for humility. This word in the Greek was a term of derision in the Greek language and culture. And in the Roman culture as well. It meant to be low, to be shabby, to be worthless. It was generally only used to describe either the very poor or slaves. Humility is the opposite of pride or conceit. It is not natural to desire humility. It is supernatural. It is a fruit of the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. God's Word, in contradiction to culture, has always held up humility as a virtue for God's people. Throughout throughout the Scriptures, Moses, perhaps God's greatest earthly servant, was described as being, quote, very humble more than any man on the face of the earth. Close quote. And then in Proverbs, we read this, quote, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs eleven two. And in Psalms, we're told that, quote, the humble will inherit the land. Psalms 37, 11. Jesus taught in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon on the Mount, quote, blessed are the meek or humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. And remember, from our study, Gentle and Lowly, Jesus described himself as gentle and and lowly or humble in heart. Matthew eleven twenty nine. So, from the beginning to the end of Scripture, humility is taught as being something that not only pleases God, but results in God's blessings. In Peter's first letter to the church, he mentions the need for humility Three times in just two verses. Look at 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6. This is what Peter writes. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Okay, Peter's writing to the church. These are the words of God. These are the words breathed out by God. And God says to his church, who we are, clothe yourselves all of you with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Now again, there's so much in this little passage here that we don't have time to completely unpack today. But there's a couple of promises in there that are magnificent. Number one, we are promised that one day, God will exalt us. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Now, our flesh wants to be exalted now. Always. Right? It's true. 
We want to be exalted now. We want to be respected now. We want to be well thought of now. We want, we want, we want, we want. But God says, humble yourself now. And when the time comes, I will exalt you. And it won't be on this earth in this life. It will be in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will be exalted in Christ. Amen? He opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be opposed by God. I'd much rather have God's grace. And so, Peter is giving a commandment to us. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. So we are to do all things with humility. Genuine humility involves believers not thinking too highly of themselves and it requires them to count or regard others as more significant or more important than themselves. The word translated count here in verse 3 or regard if it's in the New American Standard means more than just having an opinion. It refers to a carefully thought out and intentional attitude. And listen to me, it does not mean that we pretend that others are more important than ourselves. Ouch. Because that's what we often do. You've all heard the expression of putting on your church face, right? So we come together on Sunday morning for worship, and we are just loving and gracious and smiling and, right, treating others as more important than ourselves. But is that the true attitude of our heart, or is that just a facade? Are we just acting? It does not mean that we pretend others are more important, but that we believe that others are more important than ourselves. This is our having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, according to verse 5. This was Jesus. As we saw in the humble and lowly study, and as we saw in the surprised by Jesus study, did Jesus turn away the worthless, the sinners? Those who were unclean, did he turn them away? No. He considered them more important than himself. He reached out and touched the lepers. He welcomed the sinners into his presence. We need to have this mind among ourselves, which is also ours in Christ Jesus. Now, we'll look at that verse next week. But Paul there tells us how the Son of God, the creator of the universe, humbled himself. Adam read this to us this morning. He humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant. And he died not for himself, but for the sake of others. 
considering the need of others to be more important than his own life. He laid down his life so that they might have life, so that we might have life. And Paul says, we need to have that same mindset that our brothers and sisters are more significant, more important than us. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been, I've been wrestling with this passage for the last three weeks, and it is convicting. When I start to examine how I think about other brothers or sisters in the church, do I truly consider them more important than myself? And what about in my marriage? Do I consider my wife more important than myself? Do wives consider their husband more important than themselves? If, if we lived according to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, if all of us lived according to these two verses, there would literally be no conflict in our lives. None. These are the two most important verses for interpersonal relationships found in Scripture. You live this way, you'll have a happy life. Let me tell you. And we would be united as a body of believers. We'll go on and look at those next few verses next week. That's an exciting study. But here Paul says we need to have that same mindset that our brothers and sisters are more significant, more important than us. And if we do, then we will also do what we see in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Let each of you, I'm not going to point fingers, but that is pointing at you and me. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So once again here, we see a negative admonishment and a positive command. We are very quick to pursue our own interests and to overlook others in the process. In other words, how will my decision to do this impact others? How will my decision to do this impact my wife? How will my decision to do this impact my children? How will my decision to do this impact my neighbors? How will it impact my witness? How will it impact my church, my church family? We know what we like to do. We know what we prefer. We know what we want. And far too often, we do not stop to consider how what we want will impact others. Sometimes, honestly, we don't care. But other times, we're simply oblivious. Because we have not taken the time to think about how it will impact others. All too easily, we make whatever it is about us instead of about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is the exact opposite of spiritual unity. 
This is the opposite of the example set for us by our Lord. This is not how we are to relate to one another in the church. I don't believe it's a coincidence because I don't believe in coincidence. I believe in God's sovereignty over all things. That we are currently in our home fellowship groups going through a book entitled True Community by Jerry Bridges. And in his book, we're looking at how the Word of God describes both our privileges and our responsibilities in the church, in the true community of believers, the body of Christ. Even if you're not in a home fellowship group, we have a few copies of that left in the bookstore. I would encourage you to read it. It speaks on this very issue, what it looks like to be one in Christ, to have true koinonia, fellowship and partnership together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And one of the passages that he focuses on is in Paul's letters to the Romans, in Romans chapter 12. Turn with me there. This will be the last time you'll have to turn from our text this morning. I know there's a game coming on this afternoon, so I won't be long. I've seen a couple people look at their watches. I understand. You're selfish. Look at Romans 12, verse 9. I'm going to read from 9 down through 18. Listen to what Paul writes here. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. There's a couple good sermons right there, huh? Give to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ and show hospitality to them. You know what that means. That means opening up our homes to them. But only the ones we like, right? Only the ones that think like us, right? 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Oh, that's real easy, isn't it? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly or humble. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. And it is possible if we will put the interests of others before our own. That's the key. That's the key. In Paul's mind, the Romans, the Ephesians, the Philippians, and all other Christians, including ourselves, are not 
to live for themselves. They're not to live for themselves. They're to live their lives as those born again by Christ for the benefit of others. Fulfilling the mandate given to us by Christ and following the example that he himself set for us. Remember, he's not asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done. When we do not live in this manner, we are settling for far less than what God wants for us and for his church. Look back at our text one more time with me, if you will. Now I'm looking at my watch. Because I'm being thoughtful about all of you. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but with humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. These are the most important verses regarding God's will for us in every relationship that we have as his beloved children. Our Father who has given us his Son to save us, who has provided eternal life for us, is asking us now to live as his children. Is our Heavenly Father good? He is. Is he loving? He is. Is he gracious? He is. And as a loving, gracious Heavenly Father, he wants the best for his children. And so he explains to us how we should live as his children, as brothers and sisters in Christ as a true community in Christ. God's will for us in every relationship we have is to live humbly and putting others' needs before our own. We're called to follow the example of our Savior and Lord. So my challenge to myself and to you this morning is Let's not settle for anything less. Let's really consider not only how we live, but how we think. Because remember, it starts with our own heart, right? Ask the Lord to help you examine your own heart and see if this is the way you think about others. And if not, Repent and ask for him to help you to love as you are loved by him. This is what he desires for you and me, at least by my reading of this text and the other texts we saw today. God desires this for his beloved children. Let us live in a manner that pleases and glorifies our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you 
for this opportunity for us to all be convicted this morning. I am certain there is not a single person in this room or who will listen to this sermon online who will not be convicted by these very, very challenging commandments given to us by your servant. They are your very words to us. And yet they are completely against our human nature, completely against our culture, which tells us the most important love is to love yourself. We're very thankful that you did not do that. But instead, you sacrificed yourself to love us. Help us, Father God, to follow the example set for us by your Son. Help us through the indwelling presence and power of your Spirit and by renewing our minds through your Word, washing our minds. Help us to keep our flesh under subjection and to live lives where we put the needs of others, the interests of others ahead of our own. Help us, Father God, in this, that we might live lives that please and glorify you and promote unity among your people, that we might be a light in this present darkness, that when others outside of the church see the church, see the love, the grace, the unity, they are convinced that there must be a God, that the God of these people is the true God. Help us to live in that manner, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's uh, let's stand and close with a song. Mm-hmm.